Good morning and welcome everybody to uh, the Rethink Energy weekly podcast. We have today, we don't have uh, our normal team. Uh, Harry Morgan is away for the day and, and to replace him, um, a fairly well-known um, veteran writer in this space, Peter Kelly Detweiler, who's been around the industry for about 30 years, um, who's just finished a book. Remind us of the title of the book, Peter. Yeah, it's called The Energy Switch, How Companies and Customers Are Transforming the Electrical Grid and the Future of Power. Okay, and so we have Peter with us, and he has um, uh, an encyclopedic knowledge, not just because of this book, because he's been in the industry for a long time. And we'll be talking with him about vehicle-to-grid in just a while. But the first thing I wanted to bring up um, was um, the lead story in our issue, which has been a long time coming. I mean, we, we originally scheduled this for something like April, but the future of steelmaking and what it's going to do to the um, to renewables and how it's going to become green and whether it will. I mean, the first piece of news is it does look from this report. It's, it's, it's a long 75-page report with um, spreadsheets as well um, that's available from our website. It does look like you know, the steelmaking industry is making every effort to um, decarbonize it, but in the 2050 timeframe. Different types of efforts. Some are um, pushing for more direct reduced iron and using uh, methane and, and then later hydrogen in that process. And then the, the report details how um, slowly countries that are more advanced tend to take steel and recycle it. And that's instead of bu- building it up from iron ore and it maps the growth of the industry i mean this industry is going to end up as a 2.2 trillion dollar industry what what everybody thinks is that you know this growth in steel in china is the end of it that, that once china settles down and has built out all of its infrastructure its bridges its rails that steel usage will come down but then this report reminds us that all the asian tigers are, are around it are doing the same thing and going through the same process somewhere behind China. So we see steel production going up constantly from now all the way to 2050. And that's why, while it now produces 8% of carbon emissions, uh, it could produce a lot more if it continues to grow at, at its current rate. And that's why it's so important that most of the companies involved in this uh, process are, are taking one of several approaches to try and eliminate uh, emissions. Um, Peter, have you come across the steel industry and your um, uh, work around uh, the energy? Yes, Peter, and th- thanks for asking. It's um, I've come across it because I offer trainings on hydrogen. So I've been watching the, the hybrid plant up in Luli in Sweden, um, which just announced uh, this past week, I think they're going to go into major production and produce carbon-free steel through the process that you discussed. And then you see Volvo and Benz both committing to buying carbon-free steel for the cars they're going to build. They're under tremendous pressure in su- to clean up supply chain from batteries and EVs all the way to steel. So that's I, I think it's that pressure. I think it is that pressure. The, the steel industry is, is really is aware of, unlike other decarbonisation efforts before, uh, the steel industry is on top of this. And it's, it's because its customers are saying to us, 
you know, we need this. And you're right, uh, uh, Volvo and uh, Mercedes-Benz are, are the two that have made statements. But I think probably like Domino's, the whole car industry will will have to have the sentiment of the uh, of the green buyer behind them, and they're, they're going to demand green steel. The, the the other thing that's fascinating about this to me is in much the same way that the batteries created for the electric vehicle industry bled into stationary storage for the power grid, still only represents or will represent 10% of all the batteries consumed will be in the power grid. I think the same thing is going to happen here with hydrogen. Hydrogen applications in industry, especially steel, will drive the volumes of electrolyzers up and the cost of the entire ecosystem down so that hydrogen then becomes more applicable decades out or a decade out for long-term storage in the power grid. And I think it can't boomerang sort of spinning around the planet and, you know, hitting that gravitational force, if you will, to get into the orbit of the power grid until it manages to scale up around steel and other industrial applications. After that, I think H2 finds its way into the grid. Yeah, I think we, we've agreed with that. I mean, absolutely. We started out with our first um, assessment thinking that that would be around 2040. Um, as we've uh, part, as we've we've met a lot of these innovators in the um, in the electrolyzer space, we've started to realize, hey, this thing is happening quicker and quicker. And that, mm-hmm. that you know, that, that for transport applications, first and foremost, trucks, trains and buses, we're going to see several thousand uh, vehicles deployed quite quickly. And um, I, I mean, you may not know, but 40 percent of uh, trains in Europe are still diesel because the tracks can't, you know, aren't cheap enough to electrify. So that, that, that's a target right there. And, and that's, that gets people interested in hydrogen. But then something like steel comes along and it gets people thinking volume. I mean, even the steel owners, I mean, they, we, we've calculated that something like 4,500 terawatt hours of renewable power will be needed to make the uh, hydrogen. Uh, and they'll need 60 million tons of green hydrogen. I mean, there's only 80 million total global market now. So they'll need to double the size of the hydrogen market virtually just to deal with steel. So I think you're right. There's lots of momentum and different industries will add to that momentum. And the last thing line it crosses is is hydrogen to power because it's such the round trip losses are so so big. Yeah, they're kind of ugly, but it is fascinating how the electron is essentially going to make these incursions into, in the form of hydrogen, into transportation and industry in ways it never did before. Electricity, electricity is taking over the world. <laughs> That's so, so. We did a report a while back that basically said, look, in every industry there will be a green giant the size of Tesla. You need to look for them as investors. Uh, we we called called this um, energy through the looking glass. It, it was. The first time we really thought that, what, that yeah, it's, it's energy is taking over the world. And as it takes over each industry, there will be a new winner in each industry. And they will go stellar as they, as they arrive first and uh, develop market share. But starting in the year 2021, who is going to have the, the, like the nerve or, or, um, or the plans to, to start a green steel factory or plant from scratch? How would how can that be achieved? Oh, well, Sorry. mostly the, the, the large steelmakers because they know it's coming. You know, so, so there are three or four trial production lines being created by startups. There are, and the, and the report okay. lists them. But the, 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 it's the threat that there could be 20 or 30 more startups funded by venture capital, which is making companies 
that, that are already well established in the steel industry say hold on a second you know we can't let this happen to us um, and one of the one of the really interesting things is that you know electric arc furnaces in particular and the use of hydrogen in particular is stronger outside china right now and the availability of capital to invest in new production methods for steel mm. rather than stick with the old ones is pre- prevalent outside of china china could potentially lose its dominance of the steel industry over the next 30 years and so it's already started to voice initiatives there saying well we need to do this because if well, we don't you know okay. we'll get pushed out of the green steel market but my, my point well, I, i'm kind of driving at is what happens if it goes wrong what happens if you've made a terrible mistake in planning a a, a green steel plant well Can i mean I, you know, I think i think we yeah you go, go ahead peter yeah well that's one of the things that ssab this the swedish manufacturer was concerned about when they were piloting the hybrid plant they indicate that they already have offtakers for the production volumes that they will be building into in the next couple of years. So I think big picture macro, you're right. Right now, though, the, the, the first people jumping into the pool, the first entities, they're doing that with offtakers already in mind so that they can feel more confident. They sort of have a back-to-back relationship between the investments and the offtakers. Okay. All right. Yeah, the, the report does go through all this. I mean, I was remark- it was a remarkably detailed report. You know, the, the, uh, we argued, Harry and I, I said, do you really need to go into such depth in how the steel industry is changing? He's, he was absolutely adamant that he did, because mm-hmm. the um, the fact that it was such a logical conclusion and that it was only going to go to volume in f- as soon as five years. These pilots will all be up, done and dusted and, and ready to, to roll out in, in bigger scale from about five years from now. And the, the, the 10 years after that, we'll see the, the whole new steel industry born. And if you're not in it, if you're not one of the, I mean, there are two main approaches. One is is to, to go the re- replacement straight away. And the other is to try to reduce your emissions gradually over time that that second approach as we've seen so many times which includes uh, carbon capture fails mm. and so there are a couple of people who are definitely Simon they're, they're going to fail and okay halfway through they're going to throw that away and they're going to partner with someone else and they're going to because they have to succeed to keep their market share okay yeah you, know, you said that in the report uh, Peter, you you came with a, a subject that you were interested in talking about. You you were you were talking about vehicle to to grid. Um, it's a fascinating area. Yeah, it really is. Uh, I was teaching a course yesterday on distributed energy resources, and at one point I asserted that even though you don't see this happening yet at volume, we will very shortly see vehicle to grid. And you see, for example, the you know there was Chadimo and, and and Nissan Leaf that could always do it, but the CCS standard. That's a lot of the other charging standards. They weren't there, but now they've mapped out a way to vehicle to grid. And you see VW saying all their electric models will be V2G capable next year. Then you see BYD announcing very recently, the large Chinese company, that they're going to be selling vehicle to grid capable school buses to the U.S. And you see the first leases. There was one earlier this year in Montgomery County, Maryland, where over 320 buses, electric buses were being leased to the school district there, and they were all V2G capable. And there's another project that was just announced in White Plains, New York. Now, one of the initial comments I've heard many, many times is nobody's going to do V2G because 
And this is true bi-directional flows back into the grid and not and, and initially selling ancillary services and short-term frequency reg, that stuff where you're not tapping the battery. But someone said no one's going to be involved in, for example, trying to address the California duck curve and release energy every day into the evening hours and push down the peak because the battery is only 2000 cycle. So you get 6000 years on it if you just did that and you ruin the warranty and your car wouldn't function. I said, true, true yeah. that, except I was. Yeah, the uh, there's street. a couple of things there. I mean, I think you're going to come up with you're going to talk about um, uh, uh, the phosphate uh, variant of the chemistry. Yes, uh, I am. And, that, and that's great. And there's going to be more cycles. Um, th there are, of course, um, other considerations. I mean, you're going to have so much power out there plugged in that if, if you're driving on average a car for two hours a day, then for 22 hours it's plugged in. So it's available to you for a lot large period and right. lots of them. So you can you can have a, a calculation that says, look, I've used this car once this week already. I won't use it because there's plenty of others I can use. So a lot of it's going to be in the logic of the application and, and how the service works. But you're right, there'll be resistance because there'll be a fear that, I mean, you talk about school buses, school buses sit there idle all day until Correct. the children need to be mm. driven home or back to school. And while they're plugged in, they'd be a, an amazing resource. But if you can imagine if one bus fails to show up and all these kids are left waiting outside the school, you know, there's going to be insurance issues. There's going to be issues on security. You know, how do I, if I have to have an app that knows where my bus is, then somebody knows where my children are. So you're going to have security. It's going to have to be nailed down. This is about getting a, a business model that works. Yeah. So that you can reassure everybody. Yeah. And you're right. And upgrading back. There are already apps that let people know where the school buses are. My friend watches what time his children come home and where he needs to go to the corner and pick them up. So well, that's that, already, that cat's already out of the box. But the Have you ever seen the Dirty is, Harry films? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know, right? When it like, gets on the bus, you know, you, yeah. the last thing you want to know one, is to let anybody else know where your child is. Yeah, I think each parent can have access to it and, and oh, nobody yeah. else. I think it's password protected. But he says it's helpful for him because he works at home and he knows when to get downstairs and get to the corner. So how does someone lead this market? You know, someone's got to come into this market and say, I've got the perfect app and I've got the app that everyone else can use. I've got the uh, and it's going to be somebody like Amazon. It's, it's, it's going to have to be a trusted name that, that, that partners with everybody or with everyone's business model, um, probably one of the cloud players. So, I mean, that's that's yet to be seen. And I think. Um, you know, they've got to deal with security at arm's length. They've got to make sure that everything's secure. They've got to make sure the business model's secure. Otherwise, even if your battery is going to be safe for 7,000 cycles, not 3,000, you're still going to want to know that when you get back to your car, I mean, it's got to literally know what your habits are. It's got to say, like oh, Facebook, right. yeah. you know, I know you're going to leave for work in, in an hour, so yeah. I shouldn't choose your car to take electricity from because right. I know your habits. But who do you trust with, with those habits? Well, there's, there's a company in... Uh in Toronto called Peak Power. You might be familiar or not with, because it's kind of its own inside baseball, but in Ontario, there's a thing called a global adjustment charge. And for large customers, it represents 80% of the total bill. And it's your consumption measured at the system peak, the five system peak days in the year, whatever you're using then, 
you pay that times a megawatt rate or a kilowatt rate, and it can be 80% of your bill. In this instance, Peter, the company has a bunch of Nissan Leaf drivers who plug, you know, drive in, plug into charging stations that are bi-directional in the building. When a global adjustment event is forecast, the batteries are drained to X percent. Their algorithm knows the behavior of all the drivers and how far they need to go to get home. And so it doesn't drain the battery beyond a certain point unless there's enough time after that event that it can continue charging the battery and give them enough. So yeah. there are definitely companies working on trying to figure out and iterate between all those pieces. And VW says, okay, so let's say a fully electrified fleet in the United States or UK or anywhere represents, say, 30% of total overall electricity consumption. That means on average, 15% of the time, you know, of the energy in the whole grid would be sitting in batteries in cars. They say, we expect to have gigawatt hours and ultimately terawatt hours of energy rolling around in our batteries. And we are going to monetize that for ourselves and our customers. And we see that as a big new business opportunity. So someone's going to crack the nut. But I think you're right about the Amazon type issue, because if you if you look at, for example, what the U.S. is trying to accomplish with its Federal Energy Regulatory Commission Order 2222, which says that if you can aggregate 100 kilowatts of distributed resources, you can participate in wholesale markets. That's fine if there's five aggregators or 10. But what happens when you start to get hundreds of thousands and millions of devices bidirectionally flowing at the order of the RTO, the grid operator, the regional transmission operator, independent system operator, and the yeah, well that's simple. You, I mean, the, and the utility is, doesn't know though. What if the utility does not know what's it, about to happen? It's the so the situational it's, awareness is not there right now, and there needs to be some kind of an uh, open platform like what you were just alluded to with an Amazon, where all the assets are registered. Priorities are assigned, hierarchies are assigned, essentially, and there's situational awareness from all the parties that see what they need to know and know more. Absolutely. And a profit share, because you know, you're not going to do this for nothing. If you sign up for this, you've got to trust who's got the data and you've got to get something out of it. So, yeah. you know, if you want to take the risk that your car battery is going to be flat when you come back to it, which which is still a risk, it's still possible, you you want something for that. And what you could end up with is much cheaper energy for those cars because those cars become a national resource. And, you know, that would be great. Yeah, I know there's a, a project in North London with, uh, I think it's 20 double-decker buses working to prove out the concept in the UK these days. I'll be curious to see what happens with that. I'm, I'm sure that all the trials, I mean, there's probably 50 pilots around the yep. world. I'm sure all, that all of them will iron out the same kinks. And then it's a matter of who's got the power to bring it to market and how unified they can be and whether the utilities will work with them. And they have to be someone the utilities trust as well. I mean, everything keeps coming back to a cloud provider, you know, because they already trust them with, with much of what goes on the grid. So. Yeah, that'd be interesting to see that play out. I think it's 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 inevitable, but I, and I don't think there are going to be many new names in it. But it's a company like your Canadian company might well get acquired in the process by one of those big names because they've done a lot of the work already. Yeah, I think that will happen. You'll see consolidation everywhere, and ultimately, this will be one of the biggest data plays in the history of the world. All those, you know, I did a report for a client, a private client, projecting just in the U.S. How many transactions might occur by the end of this decade? And you wow. easily get into the billions. Wow. And, and is it called, hey, dude, where's my car? 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. To, to, or that me, book, Who Moved My Cheese? Who Moved Simon, My Cheese? What, what did you want to say, Simon? <laughs> well, also, it sounds to me like Nap, what Napster did to the music industry. Do, am I right in thinking, you know, that it completely, like, you know, some kid in his bedroom, Sean Fanning, to, had had this idea about file-to-file sharing going over the top of the, the music industry. Is Would would there be similarities with V2G, you know, vehicle-to-grid? Well, unless unless it's you know you're going to get uh, porn inadvertently sent to your car. <laughs> oh, I or, see. Or, okay, know, right, all, right, the, right, all the right, bad right. things that came okay. from Napster and things. Okay, uh, well, but, but it certainly, is, it, I think it's disruptive enough that what Tesla's done. Okay. But but this is another disruption, and then there's another. So how about this? Let's just throw this curveball at it. You quietly you've solved this puzzle, and then someone gets a, a robo taxis working. And so instead of being plugged in for 22 hours a day, they're driving for 22 hours a day right. and they're plugged in for four hours a day. There's no all that energy is just gone. It's now, right. it's now and being I, driven. And the number of cars on the road drops by a factor of 10. Um, if ever, if we're to believe what all the doomsayers are saying about um, about automated driving. Well, I think we'll see that first in urban areas where it would make sense for that vehicle to have that kind of load factor because you have the population densities. I think in rural areas, a lot of people are still going to want their car for some time when they want it. Also, because many people view the car as an expression of their personality and won't give it up so easily. How much of the cost of an EV will be ablated from the money you make from participating on the grid? Yeah, that's a really good question, and the answer has to do with how many renewables are entered are entered into the grid. So, what kind of volatilities you see, um, and variable energy resources bring in the need for more frequency regulation and grid stabilizing services, and then also probably create more potential for volatility between high price and low price periods. It will be a function of how the market develops and essentially a race between renewables and storage. The one tends storage tends to stabilize prices and renewables tend to make them less stable, obviously integrating less carbon into into the market on a go forward basis. So that's that's a that's a race that we still await the outcome. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure I see it as a race. I mean somebody's gonna own the recharge um, stations. Those recharge stations will invariably have a battery, a very big battery. Have to. And they will be, and they can only afford electricity if it's from solar. So that they will be getting cheap solar electricity. And, and that, that gives us a massive opportunity for the solar companies to have their, instead of being curtailed all the time, to have every ounce of their energy desired because you've got to fill those batteries up. And those batteries themselves can be harnessed by the grid because all right there won't be as much battery by the side of the road as there is in the car but there will be quite a considerable amount and they'll be in the hands of fewer organizations maybe five or six and that's a a power play for um, control of uh, of energy pricing yeah that i think i think you're right and you see companies like evgo already using batteries as intermediaries with the grid. Yeah, so I mean, all over the world, that, 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 yeah. almost everyone's. You have start, to. First generation, they started straight off the grid. At second generation, right. they've gone straight to batteries. Yeah. Well, yeah. When you start to see chargers at 350 kW each, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's it's a foregone conclusion. You have to have something sitting as an intermediary between the grid and a large fleet of charging stations. 
Um, let's just move on, because that's a subject we can talk around, I think, for quite a, a long time. But let's we'll, we'll come back to it another time. We did a webinar. Um, we did it um, yesterday, actually. And it was this um, company called Breeze. Uh, you can see them at www.breezesqueeze.com. And they're, they're basically going to lease pipelines that are dead, that are no longer in use, but that are still healthy from oil and gas companies. And they're going to do two things with them. They're going to use it as transmission to connect new renewable projects like solar farms and wind farms using compressed air in the pipeline as the uh, as the uh, transport medium. So you compress air at one end and then, you know, a couple of hundred miles away at the other end, you take out compressed air through uh, an expander, a turbo expander or, or, or a, a turbine and you turn it back into electricity. And typically they want to harness dead coal plants and their turbines because they're right next to transmission facilities. So this is going to cut the uh, the journey time to get the average uh, ISO queue for transmission in the States is three years. So you kind of you, you take out a, a counter and you say, yeah, I'll, I'll order a, a slot in the transmission queue. But you have to do that three years before you know you want it. Whereas these guys can just connect you to the pipeline tomorrow and transmit your electricity through air. I mean, that's just, it was just, when I first heard the idea, I thought it was insane. But what came out of it was the compression can be high or low. So they can do it at 600 PSI or 1100 PSI. So you can put twice as much air in the pipeline and use it as storage. So you can run an arbitrage play and they're building a settlement system at each end and, uh, and it's quite an ambitious project. So we, we thought we'd do a webinar on it, and we did that yesterday, which you can see on our website at, uh, at uh, rethinkresearch.biz slash energy slash webinars. And there's a free um, uh, video there that everyone can listen to. Just thought I'd, I'd, I'd mention all that. What do you think of that idea, Peter? I think it's fascinating. Um, certainly, it's not just the interconnection. It's the rights of way issues, and it takes – so it can take a couple of years to get an interconnection queue. It takes 10 years or more to permit pipelines because you've got first federal jurisdiction in this country, then every state's PUC can veto. And so we've seen a lot of pipelines, uh, sorry, transmission lines go down in flames because of the regulatory issues. Now, in fact, there's one pipe uh, transmission line, which is an HVDC line, it's only 300 miles buried. They're planning to bury it on a railway line. It's called the SOO or the Sioux Project. Wow. Um, but that's now running into some delays as well, uh, regulatory delays. In fact, they just sued uh, this week, I think, to to speed that up. This particular concept interests me because the infrastructure is already there, as you mentioned. I'm curious, though, as to what the uh, round-trip efficiency losses, because you've got heat losses. It's like, um, you know, high-view power or um, uh, hydrostore or some of these battery companies, essentially, or storage companies that are using compressed air or liquefied air where they – compress on one end and then obviously expand on the other, they typically tend to have you know, 60 to 70 percent round trip efficiencies and some significant losses. What does this one look like? They've they've only modeled it. They're doing a pilot, uh, scheduling a pilot now. Um, they've only modeled it and they've modeled it at 50 percent round trip efficiency. Mm. But that doesn't include 
that the heat recovery that you do as you compress the air, so right. you do heat yeah. recovery, do something with your heat, yeah. and then and then they they uh, assume they're going to use some kind of heat pump to warm the air up so it doesn't freeze a turbine when it decompresses, right. and and so they're going to effectively export that as refrigeration if anybody wants it, and uh, they're saying a number of de- data centers are saying yeah we'll have that. I mean it's a complex equation because you've got to find a, an offtake. Uh, for the heat, and you've got to find an offtake of the refrigeration at two locations that might might not be near a city. So, uh, you know, I, w- w- yet to see. But um, they're saying that that's with existing oil and gas equipment that, that you can buy today. Mm-hmm. They're going to innovate somewhat and organise more efficient equipment and design it themselves. They are hoping to hit 80% efficiency at some point. Uh, but, but they're saying it's modelled as it is today at 50% of the energy goes in, comes out. But if you're a solar farm, and, and you want to, you, you're faced with either curtailing that energy or sending it into this pipeline and selling it tonight, there's a good chance you'll make money on 50%. Oh, yeah. Yeah, given the price deltas we often see, especially in renewables-heavy areas. I saw something the other day that showed the average price in California when solar was producing was like $8, and then the average overall price was somewhere in the low to mid-20s. So there's easily an opportunity, an, an arbitrage opportunity there where you can make money. Send it to Texas, where the average uh, price um, in the freeze-out was 9000 For four <laughs> days. That was insane. <laughs> well, the thing is, I already knew that the, the ERCOT actually had a 9000 max-out. Uh, price because it had been so, there'd been energy sold at that price the previous year not not for four days not not for very long at all maybe for uh, two hours but you know that the thirty dollars out and nine thousand dollars in or the other way around so I mean that's that's that yeah a lot of people get, can get rich very quickly most mostly gas plants um, on that occasion so we, what do you think of the idea I mean we we launched this company breeze on the webinar. So, yeah, it's, I'm not sure if that's a good, good for us or bad for us. I think it's only good if we do it for brave new ideas that are unproven so that we can publicize them. I, you know, my personal belief, and it's one of the reasons I have written so extensively for years with Forbes and had covered a lot of startups is if we want to accelerate this absolutely necessary energy transition, every single idea with any level of potential needs to see the light of day so that it can then be examined in the in the marketplace of ideas first and then in the marketplace of finance second. So I, I think that's hats off to you. We got to get all those concepts out there so people can examine them and see if they're worth doing. Okay, we're going to cover a couple of more subjects. First, I want to go backwards to um, uh, you, Andres. The, um, the Senate bill, the idea that um, you're going to have a tax credit for manufacturing solar in the States um, what, what, what did you say about that? How is that being introduced? Do you think it will pass? Um, I, I honestly don't know, but it's certainly moving in that direction, because one thing I thought they wouldn't do is they've sanctioned Xinjiang polysilicon, which is used to make mm. solar panels. I thought they wouldn't do it. And by itself, that doesn't actually mean anything, because you can just buy polysilicon from elsewhere within China, or indeed the US doesn't really need to right now, because it buys the cells or it has first solar making modules that don't use silicon or it can get the the stuff from Vietnam and Malaysia and there isn't a tracking system in place to say hey this this Chinese 
module was made with polysilicon that came from Xinjiang. Uh, right now, we don't know where the polysilicon comes from. So that and this bill, they might not go all the way, but that, that it does look like they're trying to make their own, their own solar manufacturing industry, just like India is doing. And I always thought that, you know, like I said, I think in a month an article a month ago, I thought, oh, come on, just buy the Chinese polysilicon. It's cheaper than you'll be able to make it. And you'll have to subsidize. You'll have to spend years building new plants. It's 40 percent of the capital expenditure for the manufacturing line, but it's only 5 percent of the jobs. But I think they might end up doing that anyway. Um, and I another, another alternative. I mean, I think the absolute security that if 80 percent of polysilicon is made in China, if you're going to use it in your country, you, you either want to do something to stop using it by, by promoting alternative technologies like the first solar technology, hmm. or, or you want to make sure you control a significant a chunk of it so that you that when you do have a tariff war with China, it doesn't affect your solar industry. But we are seeing that they're going for the like the easier option as well with first solar. I mean, they're supporting the solar industry already with an extension of the tax credit. Actually, that was another thing that's been proposed or suggested recently as a 10-year extension of the um, investment tax credit for solar. I think it was going to originally end in 2023 or something. I think it'd be insane to push it out for 10 years because it's going to be so much cheaper. It yeah. doesn't need subsidising. And there's going to be so much money chasing solar investments. Now, I, you know, I think it's probably... Um, um, American government giving away money, so maybe for three or four more years, but uh, for ten, I think it would be. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but American consulting businesses have been unable to forecast the price of solar for the last ten years, and to make a law which might make the the government overspend um, and do something that was just making people rich. It's just going to give cause to a lot of complaint. Peter, Peter, you're, you're, you're from there. Well, it creates an opportunity for the naysayers to push back. You know, smart tariff and regulatory policy is often volumetric or price based, saying, okay, when you get to X, the tariff support then goes to and just drops over time, which the ITC does. But, but it doesn't tie directly to outcomes. And I think what we end up seeing is, yeah, we give away unnecessary subsidies to create solutions. And sometimes we create a lot of political blowback. But I do think, you know, the, the 201 tariffs on Chinese imports, those have stayed in place. Certainly the Xinjiang thing makes it more interesting. Companies like First Solar, we don't create a lot of jobs with First Solar here in the United States. It's highly automated. By the way, that plant just announced, or the company announced doubling its size now to the 6.6 gigs with a new three gigawatt facility in Ohio. So the right companies can make it here. But I think the I think the tax credit for 10-year extension, that doesn't make a lot of sense. If it does, it should be more sculpted. And same thing with an investment tax credit for storage. If you want to help solar out, Help storage because storage will enable more integration of solar than just a straight tariff or, or a subsidy for solar. So and it enables many more things on the grid. So that strikes me as you need a scalpel, and they're looking at a sledgehammer. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I think we've, um, we've probably agreed us that that to death. Um, so we, Peter, we we tend not to cover wave forms and basically anything to do with the sea because they're they're just not price effective enough but um i wanted to there was starting to to be a lot of noise about 
wave power from politicians looking to see some projects uh, in Europe. And so I asked Andrews to start looking into it. And um, he wrote a piece on uh, an Israeli firm, Eco Wave Power. Andrews, tell us about it. Uh, well, the story that made me notice them in the news was um, that they are they're, they're filing with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission to be listed on Nasdaq in the U.S. Uh, so they'll they'll hope to raise another nine million from that. And so this Israeli startup, Eco Wave Power, it seems to still be very small. Its funding is like a few million here, a few million there, usually from the EU, and they only have a few hundred kilowatts operational, but they have apparently. A really international presence. They're planning stuff in like a, a dozen countries. They've just appointed someone as the head of their operations in Portugal. And the the thing that might make this, you know, you were saying wave power is, is not cost effective. Well, what what they do is they have this little floater, which they just a, attach to a jetty or a seawall in a port. And it's only a few meters cubed in, in, in its scale. And it just floats up and down. And when it moves up and down, it pushes a piston, which drives the hy- hy- hydraulics uh, um, that just goes to a turbine. So it's yeah, really no, I've small. Seen, I've seen it. I went, went through about a year and a half ago. I went through the invention. Uh, and, and this woman is a, a highly thought of entrepreneur. And um, it, and it is a pretty basic design. And, and it gets depth by, um, by being quite fat. So if the water level goes down it still pushes the thing up and you can actually see there's a video of about 20 of them in a row uh, flipping up and down um, on the edge of a pier Uh, but but there's a lot more water than there is edge of water and there's a lot more water than there is physically fixed things like piers so it it's it seems yeah it might be price effective that's what i was thinking i was thinking how do they have a 325 megawatt pipeline Actually, I mentioned in the piece that they've talked to um, many of the ports in the UK and Portugal. So maybe their solution to this scale issue of only having the edge of the water is that they just install it everywhere that they can. Yeah, and the, when the tide goes out, it's stranded. <laughs> well, uh, it probably has like leeway to go down a fair bit, but no, yeah, I, I think think you put it in places where the tide does not go out. Um, um, yeah, so you, you, you have 100 years of history. You know whether it's going to happen or not. But also, but in, I don't see why this couldn't be installed on, on an off- offshore floating wind plant. Okay, so that's something that Harry's been been pushing, that, that, that if you have a floating wind plant, you have, or even a, 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 a fixed bottom offshore wind plant, you have the opportunity to fix stuff to it. And, and given that opportunity, you have an opportunity, to, and you have the um, transmission already worked out. So you have, you have an extra opportunity for some activity that is not wet, uh, wind related, as much as waves are not. So you're going you're gonna to cons- consistently give a bit of boost to your, your offshore wind farm. Yeah, I think, we, I think we've agreed that, that economically that probably gives people uh, something to hang on to. The, the, the big um, projects, though, tend to be um, things that work in kind of closed lagoons, uh, which have a kind of flow to them there's there's a huge one uh, pushed in car in swansea there's one actually being built in scotland and one of the things that i went over the scottish one when it when it came out 350 ton weights at the bottom of the sea because over 25 years there's a chance these things will move otherwise it just seems an insane amount of weight to be dropping into the ocean just to keep a plant in place for 25 years and, it, and that's where all the money goes 
You any experience of these, Peter? No, I haven't, but I am immediately skeptical because I live on the coast. Okay. And there are days that it's pretty windy with good waves, and then there are three or four days in a row where it's dead calm out there. And we're already dealing with issues of variable renewable energy from wind and solar that are difficult enough. Solar is pretty predictable, wind less so. This tends, sounds to me like it tends to magnify the problem. And if it's with offshore wind, the output would be relatively correlated to the output of those wind turbines because the winds, depending upon your fetch, you probably have some delay too, where the winds today, the waves tomorrow. But uh, I call me skeptical from the start. And also, I mean, you're looking at the floating platforms that are going to be 25 megs perhaps per each turbine. We already have 12 to 15s of the turbines out there. I don't know how you get to scale with a, a new industry like yeah. this. Yeah. I mean, and it just takes one. Wind is, wind is built by the same oil giants who knew how to put platforms in the water, right? Unless someone else acquired these guys and bring that level of big steel know-how to the game. I don't know. Call me skeptical. But it does give this company access to American investors. And yeah. it, it, it may... It may be the start of someone who's got $25, $30 million at some stage, and that might be enough to break the deadlock. I mean, it's, it's I, I, so the Department of Energy and, and uh, the, you know, the European Horizon 2020, uh, they put money into this mm -hmm. they, because the, the, the fact that, I mean, sometimes water is just, it's just the swell. Nobody worries about the waves, how big the waves are. You put right. this thing underneath the waves and it's buoyant and it lifts them and you use the hydraulic uh, just, just when it lifts them. So it doesn't matter if the water's calm as long as it's throbbing, as long as it's actually still got waves uh, of, of any type. There, there are about 20 or 30 different designs. I mean, and they, they, it's an engineer's paradise. You, know, you, you give it to an engineering class and say, uh, everyone's got to invent a, a wave power machine and one guy in the class comes up with a new idea each time so uh, and they have competitions the department of energy um do the same thing but so far no one's cracked it and it's it's good that there's an investable company in it and there are probably larger ones already but even so uh, i mean andrew if that's your mission find find one that's gonna have an lcoe uh, in line with mm -hmm. wind <laughs> that's uh it's gonna be tough